turn your Bible to Revelation 9. Now, in understanding what we're reading, I want to make this statement. The simplest way to understand the Scripture is literally, unless the literal interpretation seems facetious or gross or something that's, that means nothing. Now, there are people today who believe that Revelation is such a mysterious book that they leave it entirely alone. They say we can never understand anything about it, so we don't even try. I told you the other day that it was 10 years after I got out of the seminary before I started preaching from Revelation. And then I gave a thorough study to this book for many weeks before I dared to, to, to speak on it. There are some who believe that the entire book is historical, that everything in it has already happened. There are others that believe that you cannot determine what it means at all. It just simply means that God's people are on the winning side, and that's good enough. But a careful study of this scripture will reveal an outline. And if you follow it closely, just like the outline of the book of Acts, Jesus said, you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And you read the book of Acts, you find it unfolding exactly like that. They witnessed in Jerusalem, then Samaria, and then Judea, and then Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the world. Well, in Revelation, the outline is in chapter 1, verse 19. Jesus said, John, write the things you've seen. That's the vision of the glorified Christ, chapter 1, in all of his power and authority and judgment. Then write the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, the church age, the church at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Those are all pictures of the churches in every age but they also delineate the main thing among those churches in certain church ages. For example, the church, the age of modern missions is equated with the Philadelphia church, the church with the green light. The church of the Reformation, that period was, is, is equated with the church at Sardis, that it had a name that it was alive, but it was really dead. They reformed and they came out of the false teachings of Catholicism, but they didn't go far enough. And they lost all the vision of missionary endeavor. And for several hundred years, they did nothing about missions. So that when William Carey came along, the rise of the Philadelphia period, William Carey said, God's called me to Burma. And one of the associational pastors said, sit down, young man. If God wants to convert the people in India, he'll do it without you or me. Well, you see, God used William Carey to touch their, their spiritual note. And eventually, uh, a missionary organization was formed, and Adnorm Judson, and William Carey, and Luther Rice, and many others went as early missionaries. Well, many believe today we're in the Laodicean age. Now, that doesn't mean that every church is lukewarm. 
Because in every age, there are churches like Ephesus, lost its first love. There are churches like Sardis, had a name that was alive, but it was dead. Had a church like Smyrna, uh, under suffering and so on. But generally, the church age today seems to be lukewarm. Neither hot nor cold. And Jesus said, I'll spew it out of my mouth. Now, the interesting thing is, this age is just before the rapture. If you read it carefully, at the end of chapter 3, the church is gone. And you underscore and look through your Bible from chapter 4 to the end, and you don't find the church. Why? The church has been raptured. We're with the Lord. Down here on the earth, the gospel begins to come to the world through Jews once again. Before Jesus came, the gospel came to the world through the Jews. Isaiah was a Jew, Malachi was a Jew, uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Moses, all, all of them. But then in the Christian movement, Paul was the great missionary. And during this movement, there have been some Jewish preachers like Hyman Appleman and others that have gotten converted and preached, but largely the church today worldwide is Gentile. I doubt if there's a Jew in this room tonight. We ought never to be ugly to the Jews. Thank God for them. Don't ever say any mean things about Jews. My Savior was a Jew. And the gospel will again come to the world through the Jews. Now, if we understand the sequence of Revelation, keep in mind, chapter 4 and 5 are scenes set in heaven. And uh, John hears the great music of heaven, the great songs, and they, the, the, all the redeemed join in, worthy as the lamb that was slain to receive riches and honor and power, for thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us thy God by thy blood out of every kindred and tribe and tongue and nation, and has made us kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Then we have scenes set on the earth. After Revelation 4 and 5, the scene shifts back to earth, but it is as if, as if John is seeing it from heaven. And in chapter 6, we have the unfolding of the six seal judgments, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the world getting darker and darker. And the last part of that chapter, the souls who have been slain for the word of God are under the altar, and they're crying, how long, O Lord, how long? That's the end of chapter 6. Chapter 7 is a parenthetical chapter. By that, we mean that it comes between the sixth seal judgment and the seventh seal judgment, which will be the beginning of the seven trumpet judgments. Those judgments in Revelation are in sequence. There's the sixth seal, then the seventh seal introduces the seven, seven trumpet judgments. The seventh trumpet judgment introduces the seven vile judgments or bold judgments reaching out clear to the end. So when we come to chapter six, remember the white, the man on the white horse is not Jesus, it's the Antichrist. And the world is getting darker and darker. And second Thessalonians chapter two, Paul reminds the believers in Thessalonica that when the man of sin appears, those 
who have heard the truth and have hardened their necks and their hearts will never again have the opportunity to be saved. That's the reason it's so important for us to go now and reach as many as we can. Now there will be millions saved during the tribulation. Largely they will be those that we've passed up. There are probably people right in Bowling Green that nobody's witnessed to recently. How many of you have talked to somebody in this city in the last uh, few years and they told you nobody's ever told me about Jesus before? Lift your hand if you found. Look at that. I see four or five or six right here in this city. And there are millions around the world. There are about six billion people and only two billion of them know much about Jesus at all. Most of them are not saved. When the Son of Man cometh, will he find faith on earth? Jesus said that. Billy Graham says, and he's considering the whole gamut of the church, including the Catholic movement and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and all of them. He says 85% of the church are lost. You think of that. That's the reason he has a special mission in which he tries to get all the churches to cooperate so they'll hear the gospel. J. Harold Smith takes it another way. He just uses, goes to special meetings that believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and, and so on, fundamental. But he says, I believe 65% of the church that I, churches that I go to, people are lost. Now you think of that. There are people in this room who've heard the gospel and you've rejected it. You said, no, not tonight, not now. I've talked to a man in the last few days that has rejected Jesus. And every time I pray, Lord, please don't let this be his last opportunity. God grant that he'll not send away his day of grace. One of our young men talked to a witness to one of his friends this week and warned that friend, don't send away your day of grace. That means don't harden your heart so much that you can't hear the tug of God at your heart. But after the rapture, if this scripture means anything, it says God will send them strong delusion and they'll believe a lie. They'll believe the lie of the Antichrist, of the devil. Now let's look at chapter 9 for a few minutes. We are going to be out of time in a minute. Let me just read it. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw, so really it begins in chapter 8, verse 12. The fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, third part of the moon, and third part of the stars, so as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which shall yet stand, sound. Now last Sunday night we tried to preach on a sojourner or an inhabitor. An inhabitor is one who has settled down and likes this world and likes the fashions of it and the, all the things of it and he's lost his any interest in heaven. The sojourners are those who realize our citizenship is in heaven and we're just walking through the earth. We're on our way to Emmanuel's land. I like the quartet's songs. They almost always sing something about that. May not use those words, but that's what comes to my mind when they sing. Now the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. Now that word fall probably should be fallen. A star fallen from heaven. Now the difference is 
this star, it could be a star, you know, shooting stars. You've seen those and, and you've seen stars, maybe on a night, bright night, you see a star go, ooh, go all the way through the sky, seem to plunge down on earth or something. Uh, I don't really believe that's what he's talking about. I believe this is a symbol of a teacher and a false doctrine. It fell from heaven to him, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit. Now the bottomless pit is where the angels that rebelled against God are helped, kept. It's in Tartarus until the day of judgment. And there arose a smoke out of the pit as a smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke in the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. And was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass or the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. Now you think of this. Any normal locust will eat up the grass. Any normal locust will eat up the leaves of the tree, right or wrong. These are not normal locusts. I think this is a symbol of the enmity and evil that comes out of that bottomless pit and will fill the earth. You see, when saints are taken out in the rapture, the tide of wickedness will, it will be like a flood. It'll just overwhelm people and they won't know what to do. The picture of Revelation is a picture of that. Verse uh, 5. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of scorpions when he stingeth a man, striketh a man. And in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. And on their heads were, as it were, crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of a lion. Now, all of these, I think, are symbol of, symbols of the ferociousness of this wickedness. The ferociousness of this wickedness. You know, one reason, uh, traditionally, the devil is visualized as some guy with horns and scary looking and so on, is because he stands for wickedness. We laugh at it, but it's not a laughing matter. Satanic infiltration is tragically wicked in our day. All right, in verse 9, and they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name is in the Hebrew tongue Abandon, Abaddon, and in the Greek Apollon. One woe is past. Behold, there come two woes more hereafter. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from, a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates and the four angels were loosed and they were, and they were, and were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men and the number of the army of the horsemen was how many two hundred thousand thousand how many is that 
200 million. Do you know any army on earth today that has 200 million people? C-H-I-N-A, China. Listen. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision and them that sat in them, on them, having breastplates of fire and of jacinth and brimstone and, and the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions. And out of their mouth issued fire and smoke and brimstone. And by three was the third part of the men killed by the fire, by the smoke, by the brimstone, which issued out of their mouth. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails were like the serpents and had heads with them, uh, and with them they do hurt. Look at verse 20. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor walk or hear. Neither repented they of the murderers, nor of the sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. What is a requirement for salvation? Repentance. If we don't repent, there's really no salvation. Now we may not call it that. We may just have a godly sorrow. We may feel something's wrong inside. We may not even know how to use the term repent. But unless we're willing to come and say, Lord, I'm going to turn my life over to you. I need you. We can't be saved. I think some people walk down an aisle, never repent. Never change their way of living. If you've been a member of a church for 10 years and you're not any different than you were 10 years ago, there's something wrong. Repentance leads us to godliness. These people on the earth, under all this judgment, didn't repent. Why? They believed a lie. Now those who were saved, and there will be many because the 144,000 will go out as witnesses. And when we come to chapter 11, we'll find two more witnesses. And they went out and won many to the Lord, but they were killed for their faith. We had a lesson of that just recently in Colorado. The young man that came into that school with his gun loaded and shooting everybody came to this girl I think in the library, he said, do you believe in God? And the girl said, yes, I do. And he shot her. That's sort of a prelude to what's going to happen in the future. Amen. Let me just warn you. You may not see everything like I'm explaining it tonight. I believe in the priesthood of the believer. And you, you may have a better interpretation than I do. If you do, please let me know. Uh, I want to know the best way to understand this book. But if we understand it in sequence, we're now in the middle of the tribulation period. And the woes are sounding and the trumpets are sounding. These are trumpet judgments. And it's going to get worse. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the goodness of God that leads to repentance. Somehow we're reminded in Scripture that judgment doesn't lead men to repentance. It leads them to bitterness. We pray that you will put in our hearts a desire to go out and talk about how good God is, how good he was to save us and lift us from the miry clay, set our feet on a rock. We pray if there's one person in this place tonight who is not saved, 
that he'll come to Jesus. This will be God's night for him. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, please. What song are we singing? 325, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. As we sing, whatever God has said to your heart, let's do it. Just let the Lord have his way tonight. It may mean just coming to the altar to pray. It may mean standing right where you are and settling the thing in your heart there. It may mean coming to make a prayer request. If you're here and you're not sure you're saved, let me plead with you to come to Christ tonight while we sing.